How do you run a successful online community? How do you write 10,000 word essays week in and week out? How do you do all of this as a solo creator? My guest today, Mario Gabriel, can answer those questions and more. Mario is an expert at building community and writes some of the smartest essays in the world and has grown his company, The Generalist, to be one of the fastest growing media companies on the planet. Let's dive in. This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. Media executives usually juggle a dozen different priorities. I know I certainly do. That's why I love how easy sale-through makes it to run marketing campaigns that drive a crazy amount of value in less time. They're the perfect platform to turn your curious users into loyal customers. Head to sailthrough.com to check them out or via the link in the description. And now, let's get into today's episode. Hey, Mario. How are you, man? Hey, man. It's great to see you. You too. You too. I, uh, anytime we have a chance to catch up, it, it feels like I'm, uh, I'm about to be in a session of learning. <laughs> well, the, the feeling is mutual, so uh, I'm glad we get to do this. Absolutely. For those that don't know, Mario Gabriel, uh, you are, in my opinion, world class at being a wonderful creator while being simultaneously a wonderful operator. And I can't wait to get into the weeds of how you do both. Thank you. I think you're probably being far too generous, but I, uh, I look forward to diving into it together. As someone who attempts to be a creator and operator, I struggle drastically. I can't, I don't understand <laughs> your, uh, your output. So we'll get to that in a second. But for now, like what, you know, when you are thinking about the generalist and every week, what is it? Two, 3000 words. Oh, More? my, my friend, it's like 10,000, 15,000. I mean, I, I, exactly. <laughs> I like, I, it's shocking amount. I struggle to write an 800 word essay. So it's, it's 10,000 words a week. Why, like, how do you even, <laughs> why come, is like, the right question? <laughs> why, why is a good question? Why that much? But also like, how do you each week come up with it? Like, what's, tell us your tactics of like how you come up with your topic and like, what makes you say like, yes, I can write 10,000 words about this. The truth is that it's really just a sense as much as anything else. Am I really passionately interested in this topic? And am I excited to spend 40 plus hours learning about it? And do I think that the people that read The Generalist, who are by and large founders of tech companies, folks who work and run funds and are deep in this world, will they find this interesting and will they learn something from it? And um, that tends to mean that I'm covering like large funds that have a really interesting story or quite mature companies, I would say, that have done something unusual strategically one way or another. So there's no, no set formula per se, but those are some of the things I look out for. How much has it evolved since you started to today or at all? Oh, it's evolved a ton. So I mean, the first version of what I called the generalist kind of. Um, I sent an email on Sundays that was called the brunch briefing. And the brunch briefing was like a list of links that I liked with a little bit of like anecdotal stuff from me, just uh, sharing some thoughts on one thing or another. And the lesson for me in that was that things started to pick up and uh, the response I got was a lot stronger when I focused more and more on sharing original thinking. 
And so uh, that was sort of the first, I would say, change in what I was publishing. The second big change was shifting from original thoughts that maybe were fairly abstract about a market or something like that to like incredibly or things that aspire to be incredibly well and deeply researched that, you know, involve talking to experts and uh, talking to management and really going as deeply as possible into something. And that's where sort of I would say I am today, or that's the, the playbook I'm trying to operate at least, is can I write the definitive piece on a topic that will stand the test of time for at least sort of five years? Wow. Every week. That's the goal. I mean, you know, I think about this Christopher Nolan quote, I mean, it's kind of grandiose to compare a newsletter to anything that guy does, which is, you know, crazy. But the spirit of it remains, which is, you know, he was always surprised that people would say, like, that they wanted to do a good movie. He's like, every time I make a movie, I want it to be the best movie that has ever been made. (laughs) Otherwise, why would I try and make it? And to a certain extent, I do try and bring a little bit of that attitude to the pieces. Like, if I want to write about Stripe... I want it to be the best strike piece that has ever been written. And same for Angel List, Tiger, whatever it is. Your Tiger piece might be the best piece about Tiger <laughs> out there, which is pretty crazy to think about. <laughs> it, you know, I think it's at least up there. And so that's the goal. It don't, we don't always hit it, but we can try. So there's a lot of creators that listen to this podcast. You are aiming for a piece that can live for five years. You're aiming for topics that need to be deeply researched throughout a time of 40 hours. There are people at the New York Times and other amazing places that write great pieces that they spend weeks working on. How do you manage your time to like basically condense that down to 40 hours? Like how do you how how are you almost so efficient with your time for such a deeply researched piece? Well, I would say 40 hours is Generous. You know, maybe the time just purely yeah. researching or, so, you know, maybe it's less than that even for just pure research because the writing often takes, you know, a decent chunk of time too and editing and so forth. I suppose I pick pieces that at least I have some knowledge going into it a lot of the time. You know, thankfully, the more you learn about tech and venture capital, the more sort of you can bring those lessons to bear on future pieces. One of the main benefits, I would say, of getting a larger audience is that you also get access to a different sort of person. So now I can also usually talk to management in these companies and and funds, which is a total shortcut to learning about these things. You can just, you know, pick these things apart way, way faster. Yeah. And apart from that, you know, I don't have much of a life outside the generalist right now. That's sort of like something I have to figure out for myself uh, because I don't think it's probably the the healthiest uh, choice. But the truth is, I just really, really enjoy what I do. And so it makes it largely or as easy as possible to spend a, a ton of time on it. Yeah, the the life piece is a different question. How do you balance your your life? It feels like you've been knee deep in, in creating content for so long. But how, you know, when you think about executing this, the generalist is, you know, when we first started talking you were just getting started. You're still depending on volunteers of both then maybe you still are sometimes of like helping strategize of like what to do. Definitely. Um, it was a, it was an amazing opportunity to, to work with you early on that kind of stuff. And now, I mean, you are a full blown, like there are media businesses that have raised money that haven't reached your 
level of potential revenue and audience uh, influence. How do you kind of build the generalist from here, like through execution, knowing that like the barriers to media are inherently low. Anybody mm-hmm. can start the next newsletter, just like yeah, you did. Totally. How do you how do you kind of keep up with that and through execution keep growing? I think it's a a good question that maybe I should split into a few parts. the The first is effectively, do I worry about bottoms up disruption? And I suppose yep. the, the answer to that is. No, not because there's not many other amazing writers who will emerge and are emerging, but just because we already live in a state of massive information abundance. There is more information on virtually every topic than any one person can consume. And so I think it becomes less about, oh, I have to like try and make sure I keep my peace because someone else might write something about it and recognize that. Uh, everyone will have a preference. And some group of people hopefully will continue to prefer the way that I talk about a topic, especially if I can put the work into it that I like to. And so that sort of is how I think about that too, in terms of how the future looks. Um, In terms of continuing to operate, I think it's a really interesting question. And the truth is, I think the generalist is kind of in an interesting spot right now. It's now a very self-sustaining business. You know, it's uh, thanks to you know, advisors like you and others, I think we're in a in a good place and continuing to grow and have a ton of opportunity. But I do think I need to sort of think carefully about which of the potential paths I should pick because the the double edged sword of a media business is you know you can kind of extend it in a ton of different ways. You can decide to uh, use it for your investing. You could create a product. You know, like. Uh, Glossier, you can you know decide to start launching courses like James Clear. So there's a million different directions, and I think that the big challenge will be focus. Also, how do you balance? Like, it's been such a passion business for you. Like, that's what makes your writing. You know, I love that you're not worried from the bottoms up competition. It just says everything about you, not out of like being arrogant. That's not the Mario way, but out of like I'm going to do me. Um, but like. <laughs> your writing has so much passion. Like you, you said that when you were choosing topics, right? And then like when, but when you go to monetization, you can sometimes start to lose that. And like, that's a tough balance. And you've started now doing advertising. How have you thought about that as a, as a creator? Like, how do you balance your passion with advertising? Yeah, I think it is something that my position has evolved on a great deal over time. You know, initially I didn't do any sponsorship and my feeling there was, you know, great. I will keep the work for those that are able to pay for it. And, you know, what you can build a wonderful recurring revenue business that way. What I started to feel was that it really impacted growth. You know, the generalist has thankfully grown well, but I do think I probably left a good amount of growth on the table because a good number of my pieces were pay-gated. And especially for a subject that is so broad, uh, a newsletter very literally called The Generalist, I don't think it necessarily fits the sort of niche dynamics that tend to work for a subscription business or a subscription newsletter. So yeah, the, the shift to opening up all the content has had, I would say, a really positive effect in a number of different ways. It, you know, I think allows many more people to read it, which just sort of feels nice to know that the work is free and useful for people, hopefully. But also, I think it is better monetized that way. So to set the table for everybody, you are the 
sole owner and operator and creator of this business about eight months ago. I know since then you've, I think, added some full-time help within the team, but you went through a revenue model shift. You moved from subscription to ungating it. I've written about this quite a bit of the shift because I thought it was like a monumental move for you. And whether you admit it or not, I think the world who consumes your product also consumes a guy named Mr. McCormick's product. Oh, of course I recognize it. He's yeah. the best. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you, but you're, 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 you're co-leads and he's been free and everyone sees like the advertising of the venture fund and like it, it's probably hard for you not to see that. But how, like, tell me about shifting a revenue model when it's up, it's how you make money. You're like basically potentially churning your revenue, you know, recurring revenue. And why did you go and move it into community? Like, tell us the process of that and like, why, what was the fears? And then like, how did it work out? First of all, I think, you know, Packy was dead right about the model for this type of a business. And so I think at a certain point you have to humbly look at what is working in the market, take signals from the market and say, you know, someone else maybe has a better idea here than I do. And so, you know, Packy was definitely one of the people who gave me a bunch of advice and was super helpful in thinking through what a shift would mean and and what I should consider. Uh, so I'm super grateful to him for that. But yeah, it was definitely scary. I was worried that we might see our recurring revenue base drop significantly. Thankfully, at that point, we had, I would say, you know, a decent buffer from a good year of operations that I knew we could swallow it. And I also had seen the demand from the sponsorship side to know that there is an obvious light at the other end of this tunnel. This just might be uncomfortable for a little bit. And the, the way that we broke it down, as you said, was sort of like free content, paid community. The rationale was fairly straightforward in the sense that community, or rather content, can be free so that it can live and spread across the internet in the way that you want it to and propel your growth and you know ensure you have a, a large top of the funnel. Community are for the folks that you know move down that funnel and really want to engage more deeply and as a result have a higher willingness to pay. There's also some advantage in paygating a community. While there's, you know, a disadvantage in that it by definition keeps some people out, that's kind of what you want in a community. You don't necessarily want it open for everyone because then the discourse falls apart. And so having a degree of paygating I actually think improves that product. So to that end, removing paygating on the content improved that product, but keeping paygating on the community improved that product, so to speak. Yeah. You increase the barrier for the community, which you don't, you know, there could be like a negative network effects or sorts uh, with exactly. communities that you prevent from, and then you allow your content to go viral. I, uh, it worked out. I think there's a lot of lessons there. There's a lot of people, I wrote about this two weeks ago, but yeah. a lot of people are leaning into subscription because recurring revenue was hyped by every investor across the planet. Yes. And it seemed like the right thing to do. And you're proving that like you upped your LTV Mm -hmm. I bet you lowered churn and you increased top of funnel while making more revenue per user. Like you checked every box of the move. Thank you. Yeah, I think it ended up definitely being the right move. And um, it has definitely also unlocked the stuff that we're doing with community just because that is now the entire focus of the subscription. You know, it's sort of almost positively forced us to be like, all right, 
Let's make sure we're really swinging hard and doing everything possible so that people who join us are having a 10x return on whatever they're spending here. And uh, I think it's working. I've been part of your community from very, very early days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was a was original, I think, a lifetime member or whatever, annual member or something like that. And I have my favorite part. But as the person running the community, as the host, what do you think is the most valuable part of the generalist community? I mean, the most valuable part for the average member, I would say, are the introductions that we do every month. I've just heard enough times now from people that someone they meet in one of those, they're like, that was worth it, the, the whole subscription, just for that one intro. And hopefully we can make, I don't know, five, ten, or more even of those caliber intros over a year and, and many more over the course of the years that hopefully folks stay. For me personally, the most amazing part is, I mean, you have seen it, but the caliber of people who join is like very high a lot of the time. Um, And so getting to hear the thoughts of someone who has maybe built an iconic fund on, you know, the current state of the venture capital industry, they'll like pop into some thread and share, you know, 200 words on something. I'm like, dang, there's, there's no way I could get this education another place, obviously. And so my challenge, I think, is how do I increase the frequency of that and, you know, increase the frequency also of those connections? I'm a big believer in the power of niche audiences. Who is paying attention is more important than how many people are paying attention. Sailthrough is the perfect partner for executives who want to drive value for the very best people in their audience. I love their focus on maximizing engagement while you scale, so you can build meaningful relationships with the people who actually move the needle for your business. Head to sailthrough.com, that's S-A-I-L-T-H-R-U.com to check them out or visit the link in our description. My favorite aspect is, without a doubt, the introductions. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Like... I Workweek added an entire business unit to our revenue model because of one introduction you made. No um, way. I swear. Like oh. one person you introduced me to like clicked the light bulb and I was like, oh my God, this is like unbelievable. And you use a tool for that, correct? I do. I use something called Covalent. They're really great young team. I don't yep. know if they're young like as people. I, I mean that more just like as, they're, as the company. I think they're like six months old or so. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's one of those sort of simple but genius tools it does something that is so high value very well yeah uh that was if you're building a community highly recommend like looking into a tool like that because every month i look forward to my introduction good and it also like keeps me like if i'm like not putting my i'm a mario fan hat on and i'm just like a normal person paying 500 (laughs) dollars a year every month i'm reminded that like i have this totally benefit that i can utilize and we all would pay $500 to sometimes meet a CEO of X company. And like, I get that at least every couple months. Um, it's pretty totally. amazing. Awesome. I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, last thing with tactics. One of my favorite pieces that you wrote was multiplayer media. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in what you wrote. There's different ways to go about it. But can you tell everyone, because it's probably the most tactical media piece you've done. You did another piece later that was around media too, but in the summer, I think July or so. But mm-hmm. you, this uh, multiplayer media, can you tell the audience exactly like what the original thesis was and the thought behind it? It was one of the most fun pieces to write. 
The primary idea is that we now live in an age where coordination with many different parties is possible, but not particularly structured. So, you know, on Twitter, you can communicate with, you know, effectively an endless number of people, but it's very hard to center that communication around a specific collaboration, for example. Uh, you know, it would be hard to to loop in 200 people to work on just one piece of writing. But there are such clear advantages if you could do that. You know, if you could get 200 plus people to work on a piece of writing, you would have these 200 vectors of distribution. You would also benefit from 200 different opinions and perspectives. And so the challenge becomes what tooling or what changes, incentives do you need to be able to make that happen? And my thesis basically in that piece was that we're on the cusp of being able to enable that just because of the level of tooling we have, the sort of frameworks that we can borrow from open source software and other open source style contributions that perhaps the next wave of masterpieces in a few years' time will come not from one genius, but from a collective genius. And you have put that to action. You've done at least a couple multiplayer media pieces now. Yes, I think I've done maybe 12 or 14, something like that. But some of them have had like 10 plus, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think the biggest one was 20. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it was unbelievable because like it immediately went viral on Twitter. I believe it was uh, one of the Web3 pieces, I believe. Yeah, I think the biggest one we ever did was DAOs, DAOs. Um, yeah. which was a hot subject, no doubt. But it also is a subject that a lot of people have written about. And I think being able to bring on effectively 19 operators and investors who are like specialists in that space gave a credibility and depth that like, no matter how many hours I spend, it would have been really hard for me to replicate. And you are able to replicate yourself, right? Like my takeaway here and one of my like favorite pieces, in many ways, what I read sometimes through your work between the lines, not sometimes as obvious, but you, you sometimes solve your own problems while building the generalist through your writing or like yeah, notice totally. the problems. <laughs> and then like you wrote basically of like, how do I scale my brain? Oh, I go find 20 other brains like this mm. that like know this topic more. How do I scale distribution without paid advertising? I like go find people on Twitter who are great subject matter experts. Like you solved your own problem and then wrote a beautiful piece about it and then put it the action for your business. And it's like, it's working. It's a pretty awesome cycle. I think that's a, a really flattering and I think true observation. It was someone was asking me about something, you know, like what what things am I working on behind the scenes? And I was like, honestly, I kind of share all my research publicly. So if you want to know where I'm going, like <laughs> you can kind of look at what I've been writing over the past few months and and take a guess. Well you've been at it pretty consistently. I think you've done about 50-ish editions in the last like you've uh, i looked it up moby dick is about a hundred and eighty thousand words or something like that and so you uh you every three four months are cranking on a moby dick while also running a business not too bad it's not too bad it's probably more writing than any human needs to read about business but uh it's been a lot of fun let's move on to the next uh segment here where we talk about predictions 
the generalist is naturally kind of across a variety of industries, but like, let's actually zone in and, and or zoom in on, on the generalist. What do you think it'll look like in 12 months? In 12 months, my hope is that it is obviously larger in terms of audience, but also there are a few pieces that I would say now are perhaps unstable in some key way. So for example, uh, I just started doing audio versions of the articles and they're very, very shaky. It's just me with my microphone giving it a full read through. I always want to try and keep raising the quality bar on everything I do. And so I think that is an obvious place where I'm like, okay, in 12 months, like I really hope the audio version of The Generalist is as good as the written version. I think the community is an obvious place where I hope to see some continued improvement, both more people coming aboard, but retaining the quality bar. I think if we can keep doing a lot of these great introductions and um, also sort of keep up the cadence on events, which have been really interesting, that would make me really pleased. Yeah, honestly, just kind of like try and keep the sustain the momentum. Fair uh, and deserving. Any extra bottom of the funnel things you're thinking about? Oh, of course. I'm, oh, I'm always I'm always thinking about these things. I think the question is like, do I, does that make sense? Uh, yeah. You know, I have like an endless number of ideas of new, new like publication spinoffs or, you know, courses or this or that, or, you know, more investing things, things of that nature. Uh, I think the challenge is always, does that make sense versus just making the core product even better? And that's like now particularly true now with Philosophical Foxes, which is a whole other kettle of fish that is a massive exploration in, I would say, the frontier of media and storytelling that I'm also going to be spending a lot of time on. Which makes a perfect transition. <laughs> uh, in the next five years, what do you think in media will be totally different? And what do you think will be the exact same as today? Well, I do think creators, sort of personality-led brands, will retain their popularity in five years' time and probably become much more popular. So it seems totally conceivable to me that in five years' time, someone like a Packy or an Adam Ryan or you know someone else are running like massive semi-solo brands that extend into several different dimensions, whether that's running a venture fund or you know, an apparel line or any number of different things. I think we've sort of woken up to the idea that attention is, you know, the rarest of commodities on the internet and um, having an audience gives you to some extent control over a large swath of attention that you can direct in different places um, as long as you don't abuse people's trust. And so um, I think that'll remain true and and perhaps be truer. Uh, in terms of things that will change, there are two things that I, I think are like particularly interesting to consider um, just because of my own interests. One is I really think we'll see venture capital firms make attempts to tack on media brands more aggressively. We've seen like the very, very early stages of that with Andreessen and uh, Redpoint is you know apparently doing some stuff in that space. It seems inevitable that these folks who have in in some instances at least uncommoditized capital will need a way to separate themselves and so i'm interested in like that form of rebundling uh, because i think it's potentially mutually advantageous for both a a creator and a and a venture firm <laughs> in a sense that's you know what you guys are doing from the outset at workweek is putting those two things together yep 
And then I think the second thing uh, to sort of circle back to Fox's is the creation of media and stories on chain and as a massive multiplayer experience. You know, while obviously the piece on DAOs was the biggest multiplayer article we've ever created, Philosophical Foxes is for sure the biggest multiplayer media project I've taken on if I can do it right. You know, right now there are effectively 1300 characters in this world we've created and there are so many different ways you can start to create stories with those things. That is something that I'm very very keen to to experiment with and come up with hopefully some fresh ideas. You got to take care of my boy 2 chains, my fox. Oh, uh, uh, hell yeah. Uh I own two philosophical foxes. I think what you're doing for what it's worth with Storytelling is one of the most thought-provoking pieces of NFTs of not having background IP. That's a whole different conversation. Like, but what you can't build a Mickey Mouse without a background story, and like, it just was like such a light bulb for me. Oh, I'm so changed glad. how I thought about NFTs, and like you, you started to kind of. And I, I want to give you more credit than how this sounds, but like you started to kind of like learn and test through your audience of like, mm-hmm. how does this interaction happen and what does it look like and what does it develop? And all of us are fans of you. So whatever happens, it's okay. But like, it's fun to be part of this like learning process. Like, can a great storyteller actually storytell around like unique IP? Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I'm always so grateful for folks that, uh, jumped aboard and supported it and also are i think patient with the idea that like you know uh, we're gonna learn this together and we'll figure it out and i I think it'll go somewhere really interesting i definitely have learned a lot by chatting with folks that are now in the project and it's super interesting to see where people want it to go over the next sort of one two years there are ideas that i certainly couldn't have come up with myself which is i think a big part of the fun yeah, well, that's like the multiplayer with chain. It's and incentives are aligned then, and like all the good stuff. And crypto covens, those are my two. You philosophical foxes and crypto coven are the two with the great backstory and and ones that I have jumped into. Okay, last segment here is a reaction from Perpetual, the newsletter that I write every week. You have been so grateful to uh, write feedback uh, from day one. Really great feedback of how to be hopefully a better writer and storyteller, but uh, what is a newsletter that uh, sticks out to you that you want want to give a reaction to? The one that I think I shared with you I found really awesome was the Hallmark piece. Uh, You know, I'm probably a little biased given the stuff that I I write, that I really love these deep dives into a story that maybe people don't know. And Hallmark was such a good one because it's, you know, this classic brand name, but has all of these sneaky different elements to it. And I would say the takeaway that I had from that was sort of one that we've already circled in the course of our conversation, which is like, media really allows you to extend your brand and support your product lines in like all of these unexpected ways. And so I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah. The crazy thing about Hallmark was like, they were so early on content, right? But so was mm-hmm. P&G. So it was like, if you look at some of these generational brands, they immediately knew that like content was actually this key of success. I mean, even Microsoft, Bill Gates in 95, right? Content is king. Like mm-hmm. it was like early that a lot of these massive brands embrace that. And I think now there's such a interesting approach, like, oh, we have to buy our way there. And like, mm-hmm. you know, HubSpot buying the hustle. There's a lot of examples, venture funds, what you just talked about, buying media companies. And yeah, the 
thing that I'm paying attention to when you extend your brand. Hallmark did it so naturally. They like mm. did it within their brand ecosystems and almost built it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've had a lot more success. They've also embraced advertising, which a lot of these extend your brand opportunities are loss leaders if you don't monetize them. And so lots of good reactions there that we got feedback on. But well, that's that's all we got. Uh, Mario, anytime I have spent hours consuming your content, I put you <laughs> in my newsletter all the time. I, I think this audience knows who you are and think I thinks I uh, crush on you too much, but you're you're all deserving. You've been world class at creating and operating simultaneously and excited to see where uh, where where you all go in the next four or five years. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm uh, yeah, extremely grateful for all of your support and advice over the years. So thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.